Tonight we're going to study about how we can truly overcome life's mistakes. How many of you have ever committed at least one mistake in your life? Now, somebody didn't raise their hand here. I saw some that didn't raise their hands. Boy, I'd like to know what the secret is for not having committed even one mistake. But we all have. Tonight, I would like to speak particularly about not just everyday mistakes that we commit, but the larger mistakes which the Bible calls sin. In other words, how to overcome life's sin or life's sins. And in order to understand what we're going to study tonight, I would like to just review a couple of things from our study last night. You remember that the Old Covenant had blood, didn't it? Did the Old Covenant have blood? Yes. Did the Old Covenant have law? Yes. Did the Old Covenant have sin? Did the Old Covenant have redemption from sin? Yes and no. Now, does the New Covenant have blood? But what kind of blood is it? Better blood, because it's the blood of Jesus. Does the New Covenant have law? Yes, but the same law is written where? In a different place. It's the same law, but it's written in a different place. It's written not on tables of stone, but where? In your heart. Does the New Covenant have sin? Yes. Does the New Covenant have grace? Of course, if it has sin, which is transgression of the law, you need what? You need grace. If the Old Testament had transgression of the law, did they also need grace? Absolutely. And so, basically, the two distinctions between the two covenants are, number one, the Old Covenant had blood, the New Covenant has better blood that really takes away sin. The Old Covenant had law, but the Israelites, they thought that they could keep it on their own. So they said, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. All they saw was a law written on tables of stone. But under the new covenant, those who have accepted Jesus receive the law, not on tables of stone, but they receive the law of God written where? Upon the tablets of the human heart. And that's what we particularly want to dwell on in our study tonight. And we're going to follow rather closely the Gospel of John, chapter 3. This is the story of Nicodemus. Anybody ever heard of Nicodemus? Uh, he was a great leader of the Jewish nation. Now, we're going to follow this chapter, and we'll digress once in a while when we need to study something really important from some verse, and we need to amplify it uh, by other passages in Scripture. Now, notice chapter 3 and verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees. Now, that's very important. What was Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee, but not only a Pharisee. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, basically, what that means is that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the governing council, the central governing council of the Jewish nation. So this was a very prominent man. Now, the question is, what was a Pharisee like? Well, this passage doesn't tell us what a Pharisee was like, and it doesn't tell us what a ruler of the Jewish Sanhedrin was like. But we have another person in the New Testament that will help us understand what Pharisees were like and what the rulers of the Sanhedrin were like. And do you know who that was? The great Saul of Tarsus, the great Apostle Paul. Now, we're not going to read the verses. They're here in your list, and you can read them at your leisure. But in Acts chapter 6 and verse 12, it tells us that Stephen was taken before the Jewish council. And the Bible says that when Stephen was stoned, his clothing was placed at the feet of one of the members of this council, Saul of Tarsus. And then chapter 8 and verse 1 tells us that Saul of Tarsus, after Stephen was stoned, went out with rage to continue rounding up those who believed in Christ to kill them. Now, what was Saul of Tarsus like before he came to know Jesus? Do you think that Nicodemus was a moral person? Was Nicodemus moral? Yes. Was the Apostle Paul a moral person? Yes. But neither one of them were spiritual. 
They were moral, but not spiritual. I know many atheists who are moral. They don't kill anybody. They don't commit adultery. They don't steal. They use clean language. They've honored their parents. They're very moral, but they're not spiritual. Now, what do I mean by moral and not spiritual? Let's read the description that the Apostle Paul himself gives of the life that he led before he was converted to Jesus Christ. And you'll see that he was a great man. He was very moral, very righteous. It says in chapter uh, 3 of the book of Philippians, verse 4, the following. Here the Apostle Paul is speaking. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. I want you to remember that word, in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, flesh, I more so. Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Was the Apostle Paul, before his conversion to Jesus, a moral person? Yes, but he was filled with what? With pride because of his righteousness. And so now we know what Nicodemus was like, because Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Saul of Tarsus was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, as was also Nicodemus. So we know that Nicodemus and Saul of Tarsus had the same idea. They were very proud of their righteousness. They were very proud that they were Hebrews. They were very proud that they were righteous. In other words, they felt worthy of the kingdom. And besides that, they belonged to the chosen people of God, the children of Israel. But evidently, Nicodemus felt that something was missing. He had heard about this Jesus. In fact, he had seen Jesus cleanse the temple when he threw out the money changers. And he saw the authority of Jesus when these people fled from his presence. And he said, there's got to be something special about this man. And so he decides that he wants to have an interview with Jesus. Notice verse 2. Keep your place there in John 3, because we're going to return there very frequently. It says, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, the reason why he comes by night is because he's afraid that he will be seen by the other members of the Sanhedrin. He's afraid that he might be seen by the people and that they might suspect that he is following this Messiah, this so-called Messiah of Israel. And so it says that he comes by night to Jesus, and now he wants to butter Jesus up. He flatters him. In fact, he says, Rabbi, that means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. I want you to notice that Nicodemus does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah at this point. He believes that Jesus is a great teacher, a great moral teacher. And so he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, what he's trying to do is make Jesus say, hey, he, he believes that I'm a great teacher. And he's impressed by my signs. But Jesus is not going to do any pretty talking. He's going to go right to the point. And he's going to tell Nicodemus exactly what he needs. Notice verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, By the way, when Jesus, when Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say, See, the New King James translates it most assuredly. But really in the Greek it's amen, amen. Or amen, amen. Which means truly, truly. What I'm saying is solemn. Truly, truly, I say to you. Notice how he makes it personal. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, when Nicodemus heard these words, he was very irritated with Jesus. He thought in his mind, doesn't this fellow know who I am? I am one of the rulers of the Sanhedrin. 
According to the law, I am blameless. I'm a leader of the chosen people of God. How dare he tell me that I need to born again and that I'm lacking anything? Notice what it says in verse 4. He actually shifts the conversation a little bit. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? In other words, what you're saying is absurd. It doesn't make sense. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And I want you to notice that Jesus, instead of laying off, he actually pours it on thicker yet. He says in verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says you have to be born of what? Of the water and the Spirit. And then notice verse 6. That which, which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now we need to understand, folks, that when in the New Testament the word flesh is used in an ethical context such as this, the word flesh simply means the fleshly, selfish nature with which I am born. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 8 so that you can see what the word flesh means. Romans chapter 8 and verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And he goes on to say in verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the what? In the spirit. Notice the same two words, flesh and spirit. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So when the Bible speaks about flesh, it's dealing with our sinful, selfish nature with which every one of us is born into this world. And if you don't think that you were born into this world with a selfish human nature, all you have to do is go to a store and watch a little boy whose parents don't want to buy him the toy of choice. We're talking about a little one-and-a-half, two-year-old child that has not reached the age of reason. He screams and he kicks and he gets red because he's angry that he is not getting what he wants. The Bible says that we are all born with a fleshly nature. And so what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you are in the flesh, my brother. And of course, Nicodemus is terribly offended by Jesus saying to him, you are born in the flesh, and unless you're born again of the Spirit, you cannot see and you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, folks, the problem that Nicodemus had was that the outside was okay, but he was suffering a severe heart disease. You see, the Apostle Paul saw the law written where? You tell me. On tables of stone. And every day he would look at his life and he would compare his life with the tables of stone. He said, am I measuring up or not? But his heart was sick because he had not been converted. He had not accepted Christ. The law had not been written in his heart. And so he was trying to make his fleshly nature, his selfish nature, live in harmony with the law of God. And he knew very well that even though externally he lived in harmony with God's law, he had evil thoughts and feelings and intentions that every day went against the holy law of God. Now let's go to the Gospel of Matthew so that we can understand a little bit more what we're talking about. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5, and let's analyze uh, starting at verse 20. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. This is a very important verse. Here Jesus is speaking, and he says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, 
Does Jesus ask us for less righteousness or more righteousness than the righteousness that the Pharisees and scribes had? Not less, more. So we have to have as le at least as much as they had. But there is something missing. So he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that what Jesus basically said to Nicodemus as well? Yes. In other words, the problem of Nicodemus is a problem of righteousness. He's righteous outside, but he has a carnal nature inside. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said that our righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, let me tell you what the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was like. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill. And they said, we, we haven't done that. We've never taken out a knife. I was going to say a gun, but there were no guns back then. <laughs> I've never taken out a knife. I've never strangled anybody. I've never committed the act of murder. So I'm okay. But at this same time, they're already laying plans to kill Jesus. So there's murder in the heart, even though they haven't committed the act. Now, that's why the very next verse after Matthew chapter 5, Verse 20, Jesus gives an example of what a greater righteousness is. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. So Jesus is saying it's not enough to just not commit the act, but you can't even have the motive or the intention. But in order to not have the motive or the intention, you have to have your heart what? changed. Notice verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And when Jesus says this, the Pharisees are saying, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! We've never committed adultery with any woman. But then when Jesus talks about the lost dimension, and he makes that commandment even more demanding, they say, Oh-oh, we're in trouble now. Verse 28, But I say to you that whoever looks that a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. So in other words, Jesus is saying Nicodemus has a problem. His problem is that he has a carnal nature and he's trying to make that carnal nature obey the law of God. Externally, it would appear that he does it, but internally he cannot subject himself to the law of God. He cannot have that greater righteousness, which is righteousness outside and also righteousness where? Righteousness inside that leads to the righteousness outside. Now, I would like you uh, to notice Matthew chapter 23, where this issue is brought to a head by Jesus. He's speaking to the same group of scribes and Pharisees. And several times in this chapter, Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees what? Hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? It's someone who gives one impression outside, but inside is something else. Is that correct? In other words, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's like the wolf in the story of Little Red Riding Hood. You know, looks one thing, but inside by nature is something else. Now notice what Jesus says to them. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Anything wrong with that? Does God expect us to pay tithe? So were the Pharisees wrong in paying tithe? Is that part of righteousness? Is that part of manifesting righteousness in the life? Yes. But what was missing? They had the external, notice, for you pay tithe of the mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, you need to do the external, but you need to do it because the inside is right. Are you following now, what I'm saying? Now he continues saying in verse 24, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite. Now notice this. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. 
And then he says in verse 24, blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful, out, beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and what? And lawlessness. Where is the problem of the scribes and Pharisees? Outside or inside? Inside. In fact, do you know that they used the outside to show how good they were? That's legalism. The idea is, you know, I measure up to the law. Hey, folks. I'm pretty good, aren't I? Look at all these works that I'm performing. Hallelujah. Glory and honor be to me. And of course, the end product of that is to say, and that guy over there, he's not even reaching up to my standard. So in other words, it's not only a method of self-exaltation, but it is a method of bashing others that do not reach our high standard of piety. In other words, there's a problem with the heart. There's a problem with the inside. Let me tell you, folks, the problem of sin is far greater than overcoming bad habits on the outside. Because all sin begins and springs from the heart. And if the heart is wrong, your actions will be wrong. You say, how do we know that? Well, let me give you two examples. The first temptation in human history, Eve. Was Eve's temptation, I mean, was Eve's sin to take the fruit? Is that where she sinned? We like to think so, but not really. If you read Genesis 3, you'll discover that it says, first of all, Eve saw that the fruit looked nice. Then it says that she desired the fruit. Because it could make her wise. Then it says that she what? She took the fruit. Notice that she desired it before she took it. Do you know that's the way adultery comes about? Adultery doesn't happen overnight. When somebody in the church or outside the church commits adultery with someone else, it's usually the result of a long process of covetousness that has existed in the heart. The act is only the fruition of what is taking place inside the heart. The same could be said about other sins. Now, we also have the story of Achan. You remember Achan in the Old Testament? His story is in Joshua chapter 7, uh, when Israel went in and conquered the city of Jericho. God told them not to take anything from Jericho. That was the tithe of the land that all belonged to the Lord. And uh, the Bible says that Achan went in and he saw some gold and he saw some silver and some precious garments. And he said, you know, not good for these things to go to waste. And he went and hid them under his tent. Now, in Joshua 7 and verse 21, when finally Achan is discovered by Joshua, the Bible tells us that Achan gives the process of his sin. He says, I saw these things. Then he says, I coveted them. Then he says, I took them. And then he says, I hid them. By the way, after Eve committed her sin, she's trying to hide too. And so notice that sin always begins where? In the heart, with the motives, with the intentions, with the feelings. That's where the impulse of sin comes out from. And folks, if you want to conquer sin, you have to conquer it, not when you're tempted to perform the act, but when you're tempted to have the feeling or the inclination. Martin Luther once said some very wise words. He said, you can't prevent the birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. And what he meant is you can't prevent temptations from coming across your mind, but you can prevent the temptations from lodging in your mind, from lodging in your brain. But you have to have a particular power in your life for that to happen. And Nicodemus and Saul of Tarsus did not have this. Let's notice, do you know Jesus had a lot to say about the heart? Bringing about sin. 
Notice what he says in Mark chapter 7. Go with me to Mark chapter 7 and verse 20. Mark chapter 7 and verse 20. And by the way, in our topic next Wednesday night, we're going to study Mark chapter 7 in detail because this is a very, very important chapter in the teachings of Jesus. Mark chapter 7 and verse 20. Notice. And he said, that is Jesus, what comes out of a man that defiles a man. For from within, from where? From within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from where? From within and defile a man. Where is our problem? Is it with our actions or is it with our heart? So what needs to be done? Do you have to solve the problem of your actions or do you have to solve the problem of your heart and then your actions will take care of themselves? That's the second. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 15 to 20, By their fruits ye shall know them. So you can know what's inside by the fruits. Can't you? Let me ask you, what does an apple tree produce? What a dumb question. It produces what? Apples. Do you have to tell the apple tree, now apple tree, you better produce apples. Of course not. Because the nature of the apple tree is to produce what? Apples. Now if you have an evil heart where all of these sins are in that Jesus spoke about, what's going to come out? The same thing. But if you have a heart that has been committed to God, then what's going to come out of your heart is the good. Incidentally, you all know the story of David. Horrendous sin, folks, that David committed. Oh, you read 2 Samuel chapter 11. And by the way, his sin followed the same process that I've talked about. His sin did not start when he took Bathsheba. His sin started when he went out onto the balcony of the palace and he looked out and he saw Bathsheba bathing naked. Now, that was not a sin, particularly at that moment, when he went out and momentarily saw her, but what should he have done? See, there was the bird flying over the head, to use Martin Luther's analogy. He should have turned around, and he should have said, No, I will not continue looking. Then temptation would not have become sin. But the Bible tells us that he kept on looking. And so now, looking... Seeing became covetousness. And covetousness in his heart led him to take her. And when he took her, he did everything possible afterwards to hide what he had done. But be sure that your sin will find you out. And David's sin was found out. David wrote that beautiful psalm, and I'd like you to go there with me, Psalm 51. And I want you to notice that David asks the Lord for two things in his psalm of confession. Praise the Lord. You know, his sin was horrendous. But David was a man after the Lord's heart because David repented truly for sin and he confessed his sin. Notice Psalm 51 and verse 1. The first thing that he asks for is forgiveness. What does the new covenant give us? True forgiveness through the blood. Notice that that's the first blessing that David asks for. Chapter 51 and verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. In other words, get rid of my sins. But he asks for something else. Notice verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So he asked for the double blessing that we've talked about last night. Forgiveness through the blood and what? A new cleanse, pure heart. And incidentally, what's interesting about the word create here in verse 10, it's the identical word that is used in Genesis 1 verse 1, the word bara, which means to create from nothing. In other words, this takes as, takes as great a miracle as the creation of the world to create a new heart in David. And so David prays to God and God gives him a new heart. 
For those Christians who think that the law of God is a heavy burden, that Jesus got rid of it on the cross, that Christians don't have to keep it anymore because the Lord Jesus kept it in our place, let me tell you that after David went through this terrible sin, he wrote Psalm 119. And you have the verses there on your list. Time after time after time, David says, How I love your law. How I love your law. All day, Lord, it is my meditation. David didn't say, oh, your law is a burden. It's so heavy. Nobody can keep it. He said, I love your law. So what was the problem that the scribes and the Pharisees had? They had righteousness outside, but they had unrighteousness inside. What did they need? A new what? They needed a new heart. I want you to notice, you remember the story of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? And he says, you know, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Evidently, he feels something's missing in his life, doesn't he? Or else he wouldn't have asked. See, he has this inkling that even though he, cla he claims to be a law keeper, there's something that's missing. So he says, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Jesus says, oh, simple, keep the commandments. And uh, he says, this is too good to be true. I better check and make sure which commandments they are. They're the same ones that I'm thinking. So he says, which? And Jesus says, listen. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And he quotes the last six commandments except one. He does not quote the commandment that says, thou shalt not covet. In place of that commandment, he puts the one that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But evidently the young man wasn't really listening or paying attention to what Jesus was saying. So he says, all these I have kept from my youth. What more do I lack? I've got it all. And by the way, he was also one of the members of the Sanhedrin. He was a ruler among the Jews. And so he says, I've kept these from my youth. What more do I lack? Jesus says, what you lack is love as the motivation for your law keeping. You see, you claim to keep all of these commandments which we noticed last night that keeping the commandments are what? Love in action. Because if you love, you're not going to commit adultery. You're going to do everything possible to save people's marriages. If you love your neighbor, you're not only not going to kill him, but you're going to do everything possible to preserve his or her life. If you love your neighbor, you're not only going to, not, not going to want to steal, but you're going to want to share what you have with, more, with needy people. In other words, the law is not only ceasing to do evil, the law means to share God's love. It means to do good. And so Jesus says, so if that's the case, you've been keeping the law since you were a youth, you must be ready for heaven. He says, I'll tell you what, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. And what did this young man do? He went away sad because he had many possessions and he did not want to give. And the Ten Commandments teach us to what? To love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love the Lord your God. Obeying the Ten Commandments is love in work clothes. It's love in action. So to say that you're keeping the commandments and not loving is a contradiction because the Apostle Paul says that love is the fulfilling of the law. By the way, the Lord Jesus knew very well that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Are there many Christians that claim to be Christians, but their hearts are in the treasures of this world? Sadly, yes. Where is the problem? The problem is with what? With the heart. Do you know, I rarely, in church, speak about giving tithes and offerings. Very rarely. Those of you who come here know that I very rarely speak about the need to give tithes and offerings. You say, why, why Pastor? Why don't you talk more about that? You know why? Because I believe that when people give their lives to God, the money will come jumping out of their pockets. And it will automatically go into the offering plate. Not because urgent calls are made, not because a guilt trip is laid on people, but because people love their neighbor and love the Lord, and, they, and when you love, you give. 
You don't save. You don't pocket. You're not covetous. So Jesus knew. He says, where your treasure is, there is where your heart is also. And by the way, Jesus also said, from the abundance of the heart speaketh the mouth. That text is on your list, Matthew chapter 12. So what, you, what comes out of your mouth? What's where? In your heart. What is the topic of our conversation most of the time? How often this week so far have we talked about Jesus? Have we talked about heaven? Have we even thought about heaven? We talk about our cars. We talk about our money. We talk about our houses. We talk about our clothes. We talk about our looks. We talk about our job. We talk about all secular things. And we hardly find a tiny little space to talk about Jesus and spiritual things and heaven and the new life. That shows that there's something wrong where? In the heart. Because from the abundance of what you have in your heart, your mouth speaks. If Jesus is in your heart, that's what's going to come out of your mouth. If the world and secular things are in your heart, that's what's going to come out of your mouth. So let me ask you, what is it that we need? We need a new what? Heart. Do you remember that the new covenant offers two promises? Most Christians only like one. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus forgave me. I can now go in peace. I've been forgiven. The little bumper sticker says, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. Well, I'm not perfect either. But I'm not just forgiven. I can tell you that. Because I not only have been forgiven of my sins, I also have received the Holy Spirit of God in my heart. So don't cheat yourself by only being satisfied with half a gospel, with half the power, the power of forgiveness. Also receive the power in your life to overcome sin. Let's go to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is a text that we read last uh, night. Jeremiah chapter 31. And I would like to read starting at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember when God gave his covenant, the Ten Commandments, they said, all the Lord has said, we will what? We will do. Did they know what they were saying? No, because they thought they could make their old nature obey the commandments. They were legalistic in their answer. It continues saying, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then it says in verse 34, no one, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Double blessing. The law in the heart and what else? Forgiveness of sin. So what does God want to do? He wants to write his law where? In our heart. So that we will naturally do what the law requires. Not because we have to but because we love God and we want to. It will be our pleasure to do what God would have us do. Let me ask you, how many women here make bread? Bake bread. Oh, we have several that bake bread. I'll have to find out who you are. <laughs> and then I can go sample everybody's bread. Now, when you make bread, you put in the flour and the water and everything else, you make a great big lump of dough, and then you open a little bag of yeast and you sprinkle it on top of the dough. Huh? You don't? You see, if you put the leaven and you sprinkle it over it, it will rise. In order for the dough to rise, the leaven has to be where? Inside. And so, in order for your life, your spiritual life to grow, the Holy Spirit and the law has to be where? Inside. And it has to work its way out. So when the Spirit is in your life, when the law is in your life, 
the result is that automatically your life what? Your life grows. You don't have to force yourself to grow. See, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees was very simple. And I don't know, probably none of you have ever tried this before, but supposing you have this apple tree in your yard that is a regular embarrassment because it's never produced an apple. So you say, this is embarrassing to have this apple tree in front of my house and not a single apple year after year. So what you do is you go to the grocery store. <laughs> and you go there to the, to the produce section of the grocery store and you find the apples that still have the stems on them. And at night when nobody's looking, like Nicodemus, you take those apples to your house and you put little threads on the stems and you hang the apples all over the tree. And lo and behold, the next morning, the neighbors get up and they say, A miracle! A miracle! Overnight, that tree produced apples. But listen, they are artificial apples. They do not come from the nature of the tree. They are hung on the tree. That was a problem with the Pharisees. Their righteousness did not come from inside. Their righteousness was hung on the tree, so to speak. It came from outside. It did not come from inside. And let me tell you something, folks. There's a myth among Christians. And that myth is God doesn't really care what I look like on the outside. He only cares about the inside. That is a myth. Because God is concerned with what we look like on the outside. What comes out of our mouth? How we act, how we dress, where we go, how we eat. You say, Pastor, you're being legalistic. No, not as long as we realize that we do those things because we love God and they come from inside. You see, a legalist is not a person who keeps the law. A legalist is a person who thinks he can be saved because he keeps the law. Did you understand what I'm saying? A legalist is not one who keeps the law. Then Jesus was a legalist. Have mercy. Jesus kept the law. Was he a legalist? No. How did he keep the law? It came from where? From within. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments in the same manner. Now, I'm going to tell you something which is really exciting. Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18 Let's go there for a moment. Exodus 31, in verse 18, we find written there the occasion when God wrote the Ten Commandments. And I want you to notice what it says there in Exodus 31, in verse 18. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he, that is God, gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Who wrote the Ten Commandments? The finger of God. Now the question is, what is the finger of God? Go with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and let's read verse 28. Matthew 12 and verse 28, and then we're going to go to Luke 11 and verse 20. We're going to compare the two verses. Let's notice what the finger of God is. The finger of God wrought the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. Correct? We just read that. Now notice Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28. Here Jesus says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. How did Jesus cast out the spirits? With the what? With the Spirit of God, it says here. Now go with me to Luke chapter 11 and verse 20. Luke chapter 11 and verse 20. The same concept, but it's explained in different words. It says there in Luke 11 and verse 20, Jesus speaking once again, But if I cast out demons with the what? With the finger of God... Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So my question is, what is the finger of God? What is the finger of God? The Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, that finger of God that registered the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, which was the Holy Spirit, the finger of God, is that the same Holy Spirit that comes and with the finger of God 
writes the law upon our hearts? Is it the Holy Spirit that does it? Yes. So what do we need more than anything else? We need the Holy Spirit. Now let me say this, folks. Have you ever noticed, have you ever seen somebody who is just an ideal physical specimen, muscular, rosy, elegant, and a certain day has a heart attack and falls dead. You see, the outside can deceive you. You would have never guessed that that person who's so nice looking outside could have such a sick heart. That's the problem with the Pharisees. Oh, they were elegant outside, but they had a sick heart. And let me tell you folks, God is the great heavenly surgeon. He's a cardiologist. God does not do bypasses. God does not put in pacemakers. God does not put in pig valves. God does not do angioplasty. There's only one kind of operation that God performs. And do you know what that is? A heart transplant. He will take out your old heart. And if you will allow it, he will put a new heart in you. That sound like something that you would like? Now you say, how is this possible? Let's go back to John chapter 3 and read verse 5. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of what? Water. That's water baptism. And what else? And the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born of water and spirit. Water is water baptism, and the Spirit is the Holy Spirit that you receive at baptism. You say, how do we know that? Go with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Here, the Apostle Peter is finishing his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 and verse 30, actually let's read verse 37 because it gives us the reaction of the people that are listening. It says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? In the light of what you've preached, what shall we do? Notice the answer. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's the first blessing we've talked about, right? The blood of Jesus was shed for the remission of sins. This is the new covenant. Remember we read it yesterday in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for the remission of sins. So in other words, at baptism, when you're baptized in the water, your sins are all what? Remitted forgiven and washed away. But is that all God does? No, there's two blessings that we need in the new covenant. Forgiveness and power. Now notice what it says. Once again, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. By the way, is that the same process that Jesus followed when he was baptized? The Bible says that he was immersed, he was submerged under the water. And then he came up out of the water. And what came down from heaven? The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And a voice was heard that said, This is now my beloved Son in whom I, have, I am well pleased. And do you know what the next event in the life of Jesus is immediately after that? The Bible says that Jesus goes into the desert to be what? Tempted. How did Jesus overcome temptation? By the word of God, yes. But what had he received immediately before at his baptism? He had received the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome. Now he didn't have any sin to bury in the waters. But he did receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guided him into the desert. And the Holy Spirit gave him the victory over sin in the desert. 
Now allow me to just mention uh, something which I feel will help us understand a little bit better what we're talking about tonight. When I was a young boy, probably ages of 7 to 12 approximately, I had a hobby, and the hobby was to collect butterflies. Those of you who go into my office at the end of the complex will see a picture frame there with an article from a magazine in Venezuela where I grew up, uh, where it was a documentary that was done in the most important magazine in Venezuela on uh, the methods of catching butterflies. There are several picture of, pictures of my butterfly collection down there. And I learned a lot of things as I was collecting butterflies. It's one of the greatest miracles that takes place in the world of nature. Do you know that a butterfly is actually born twice? You say, now how's that? Yeah, first time is born a caterpillar from an egg. And then the caterpillar eats from the tree, the tree where the eggs were laid, and eats, caterpillar grows, becomes large, and then the caterpillar buries itself in a cocoon or a chrysalis. It's buried. And then after a while, out of the cocoon comes no longer a caterpillar. But out of the cocoon comes a butterfly. Now you say, how in the world did that happen? It went in a caterpillar and it comes out a butterfly. How is that? Well, let me tell you, folks. A caterpillar, uh, excuse me, a butterfly is not a caterpillar with wings attached. A butterfly is a totally new creation by a miracle of God. Scientists cannot see the power that does the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into the butterfly, but they can see the result. You remember that Jesus says to Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can see its effects because it moves the branches. And so with this caterpillar, it shuts itself in the cocoon. A miracle takes place in the cocoon that even the scientists can't understand. And lo and behold, out comes a butterfly. You can see the effects of the miracle, but you cannot explain the miracle. Incidentally, when the butterfly comes out of the cocoon, it changes name. It's no longer called a caterpillar, it's called a butterfly. Do the habits of the butterfly change as compared with the caterpillar? Yes. See, a butterfly flies. The caterpillar just kind of drags himself along, like many people. Does the butterfly look different than the caterpillar? Oh, yes, it does. It's beautiful. Does the butterfly eat different than it ate when it was a caterpillar? The answer is yes. It looks different. It has a different name. It eats different. It's totally different because a miracle has taken place when it was buried in the cocoon and then it came out. Could the caterpillar become a butterfly if it made up its mind that it wanted to be a butterfly? By having strong willpower, I'm going to become a butterfly. Listen, you cannot get a new heart by determining that you're going to have a new heart. The only way that you can have a new heart is through a miracle of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that those who are in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed, and everything is made what? Everything is made new. You talk different, you dress different, you like different things, the entertainment you like, you don't like anymore, the worldly things you like, you don't like anymore. Your life has totally changed. Not because there was a pastor that said, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. Not because the law says, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. But because there's love in the heart, and love impels you. Love springs from the heart, and it's a joy to do all of these things. Can you imagine a butterfly behaving like a caterpillar? 
And yet there's many Christians that claim to be Christian butterflies and they behave like caterpillars. Now listen, folks. It's not enough only to be baptized in water and to receive the Holy Spirit. But we have to learn to abide in Jesus. You see, this experience of forgiveness of sin and having the law written in the heart takes place every day. At least it does in my life. You can't depend on an experience you had 20 years ago. Some Christians tell me, I've been, I've been in the church 40 years. I have 40 years of experience. And I tell them, what you have is 40 years repeating the same year. Because there hasn't been any growth. There hasn't been any progress. Do you think a 40-year-old Christian who's been 40 years a Christian should have many more victories than someone who is a brand new Christian who has just been born? I would think so. Jesus said, abide in me. You can read it in John chapter 15. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. I and you, let's abide in one another. In other words, we have to abide in Jesus. Let me just tell you as a sidelight, when I caught butterflies, I would catch them at this national park in Venezuela. And I would go in with my net and my jar. The jar had a very deadly poison called carbon tetrachloride. And the minute I put my butterflies in that jar, I mean, the butterfly would, would hardly even move. It would just turn its wings the opposite way and just die. That's the reason why I quit collecting butterflies. Because I couldn't kill them anymore. I, 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 they lived such a short time. They're so beautiful in the air flying. If the Lord wanted dead butterflies in a box, he would have made them that way. So anyway, I, I would go hunting butterflies in this national park. And I, would, I caught a lot of the ones that are in that picture. Beautiful, these blue, large butterflies. Well, a couple of years, I didn't go to that park, and I went two years later, and I had my net with me and my jar with carbon tetrachloride. I was going to catch butterflies. And uh, the ranger of the park said, uh, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to catch butterflies. He said, you can't do that. I said, why not? says, because uh, since you were here last time, this has been declared a national refuge. And all of the butterflies are protected. Now, it's interesting. These blue butterflies, they love bananas. When they were caterpillars, they didn't love bananas. They ate leaves. Then afterwards, they ate bananas, see? But they were vegetarians before and after. <laughs> and so, they said they love bananas. And if you throw a banana on the ground... They'll all gather on it. So I said, no problem. I went outside the gate of the park. I threw down my banana. And I said, I'll come back in a half an hour. And any butterfly that leaves a refuge is going to get caught. And the butterflies that did not abide in the national park ended up dead in my collection. That's the way the devil is. If you don't abide in Jesus, if you don't keep your eyes on Jesus, the Bible says that by beholding him, we become changed. The devil can come and overcome us, even after we have come to know Jesus. The Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, only a person with a pure heart can see a pure God. Now, you're probably wondering what happened to Nicodemus. Did Nicodemus see the light? Yes, he did. The last two references on the list that you have, John 7, verses 50 to 52, when the Sanhedrin wanted to accuse Jesus. Do you know who stood up to defend him and was chastised by the other members? Nicodemus. And even more significantly, folks, in John 19, 39, the Bible tells us that Nicodemus brought myrrh and aloes, a hundred pounds, which was worth a fortune in that day and age, to anoint the body of Jesus. And the Bible says that Nicodemus, in the broad of day, along with the others, went and buried Jesus in the tomb. So Nicodemus was born of the water and of the Spirit. And Nicodemus will see and he will enter the kingdom of God. The question is, are you going to be there with Nicodemus? Have you had your interview with Jesus? Have you been baptized of the water and of the Spirit? Maybe you've been baptized of the water and you didn't understand everything that we're talking about tonight. Maybe you need to have a, a, a recommitment. If we didn't understand what we did the first time, maybe we need to do it again. 
Because we need to understand what we're doing, don't we? Pray. Father in heaven, we've been touched by your message tonight. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus was able to reach the heart of Nicodemus. Lord, there are many Nicodemuses here tonight. People who perhaps didn't understand everything that we've talked about tonight. People that struggle with sin. People who struggle with bad habits. Struggle with life. I ask, Lord, that you will give them forgiveness for their sins. I ask, Lord, that you will do even more than that. That you will plant your law in their hearts. That you will give them a new heart, a clean heart so that out of love they will do what is pleasing in your sight. Lord, if there's anybody who is particularly struggling with sin tonight, I ask that you will come close to them, speak to their hearts, and encourage them right at this very moment. We thank you for being such a wonderful God. We're thankful you're not only taking half a measure to save us, just to forgive us our sins, but that you also cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and you give us a new heart. Lord, if there's anybody here tonight that is struggling with filling out the card and making a decision, I ask that you will not allow them to leave this place until they have given their life to Jesus as their Savior and Lord. I thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer, for answering it. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.